Welcome to AM Best Audio. As the momentum behind decarbonization and net zero objectives builds around the world, insurers are increasingly trying to understand and address the investment implications of climate change on investment policy and asset allocation decisions. The need for insurers to take action on climate science just keeps building with the NAIC announcing that insurers meeting certain criteria must be compliant with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures reporting as of November of this year. I'm John Weber for Best Review Magazine, and I'm speaking today to Tim Antonelli, who leads Wellington's Global Insurance Portfolio Solutions. Tim, so glad you could join us today. John, thanks for having me. Good to see you again. So, Tim, could you start by giving us the lay of the land as it relates to insurers' progress on integrating and assessing climate change? Yeah, definitely. So, I have a really unique position in that acting as a thought partner for our global insurance uh, clients, I'm able to just have a lot of conversations about this very topic. In fact, I'd estimate over the last four to five years, I've had about 300 different meetings with global insurers about climate risks and opportunities specifically. And I think at the highest level, the regional stereotypes hold true. So you have the Nordic region, you have the European Union, and you have the UK, and all of those insurers have been moving at a much faster rate because of the emphasis put on this initiative by the local governments in those areas. And I think what we've started to see are some real best practices that have emerged from who I think are the furthest along on their journey. Some of the trademarks of that group include a consistent top-down organizational philosophy, a broken down silo construction across all functions at the firm. So for example, you have actuaries working with investment professionals as they're assessing the risks and opportunities presented by climate. And most importantly, they're using a similar data set. So they're not operating in isolation, which I think is critical. And then another hallmark is climate related commitments. And while those could be simply signing a, uh, a signatory of specific climate initiatives or making stated financial commitments um, about the amount of green bonds you invest in or sustainable friendly assets to specific net zero commitments an organization makes, including um, those that aren't just 2050. So we've seen insurers start to make commitments closer to 2035 and in from some, some of those that are most for the, uh, far along rather. I think when we compare and contrast that to Asia and the United States, we know that Asia and the US have traditionally been a little bit further behind because the regulatory influence hadn't been there and they weren't really wrestling with a lot of the issues that the other portions of the world I discussed were. But what we've seen over the last two years has been really remarkable. And I think it begins with this idea of shifting from just exclusionary based investing to trying to maintain the broadest investable asset universe and understanding that things like engagement can become a very valuable tool in this journey. And it's not necessarily about divestment or excluding uh, certain sectors altogether. I like to say that it's not just a yes, no story, it's moved to an if then. So we, d we won't say you can't invest in the energy sector, but if you do, we wanna understand that they're using science-based targets or that they have some sort of carbon uh, a just carbon transition that's embedded in your research. And I think that's been good progress in the United States. Uh, I think as far as measuring the emissions of the portfolios has gone, certain data providers are becoming a little bit more uh, pronounced versus some others. And I think that'll continue. 
And then as I mentioned earlier with net zero commitments, the majority of those in the APAC and US regions are still at the 2050 range, but they're very curious about how they can actually hit some of those goals. The second pillar, obviously, and what's causing all of this focus right now is regulatory influence. And you mentioned in the introduction about the TCFD related disclosure that the NEIC is mandating as of November. And, and I think this is a huge step for U.S. insurers. So this will include a, an enormous volume of insurers across 15 different states in terms of licensing. The, the barrier to have to complete this survey is very low. So if you have 100 million of countrywide premium and you're licensed in one of 15 states, you have to fill out this climate disclosure survey, which will bring the number of insurers from 28 to 400 that are expected to participate by November and will cover about 80% of the U.S. overall premium. And so it's a materiality exercise for some of the variables and it spans governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. And they're totally fine with an insurer saying this climate risk in particular has no material impact on our organization or our business. But you have to demonstrate the research that underpins that assumption, which I think is, is going to be a challenge for some insurers who are new to considering some of these things. And there's one area where there is no impact of materiality, and that is on the metric section around scope one and scope two emissions. And in those cases, insurers are going to have to report what their footprint looks like, and they won't be able to say it's immaterial. There's no threshold for that disclosure. And then finally, the third pillar, which involves AM Best, is just as rating agencies begin to transition to more of a prospective view on how to integrate, uh, integrate potential climate risks on an insurer from a forward-looking perspective and have that impact their credit rating. And that's going to be another reason insurers have to get all of these affairs in order and they have to do so quickly. Tim, has the year-to-date market volatility de-emphasized climate specifically and ESG broadly from an insurer's perspective? Yeah, so I think with, for some folks, maybe. I think anytime you have a significant market drawdown, it does have a tendency to recalibrate some individuals' uh, priorities. But I actually think that for the majority of the clients we work with, it actually emphasized the importance of ESG variables as it relates to assessing risk. And so the war in Russia and Ukraine is a pretty powerful example where it highlighted geopolitical issues that can have long-lasting ESG-related impacts. And alongside that, given the energy shortage and the crisis that's, that's coming out of that part of the conflict, we've seen a lot of insurers who have been considering investments in the energy space but want to do so through more of an ESG-friendly lens. And whether that's purely investing in green-related uh, renewable energy or doing something, again, where the energy companies have a just carbon transition plan in place, uh, we're having more of those conversations. And then finally, with inflation as the backdrop as it's been today, and insurers haven't been investing in commodities all that much, insurers ask the question, is there a way to get commodity exposure and implement it in a way where I'm getting that inflation benefit but can be done through a sustainable lens? And I think both of those elements have really made ESG with the ongoing volatility a very interrelated story. I'd say the overarching theme, though, is that this idea of thematic investing as it relates to ESG has not slowed down year to date. In fact, the conversations around that have continued in a major way. And so leaning into things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals or leaning into impact approaches with measurable key performance indicators as it relates to ESG and impact targets have been more popular than ever in spite of the market drawdown. And also 
anytime the market sells off, it does create potential attractive opportunities for people to buy assets that maybe had been overvalued as the market had been on such a high trajectory over the last few years at a more attractive entry point because they drew down with the rest of the market. So how is Wellington helping insurance clients on this journey to better understand and incorporate climate impact? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think this is an exciting aspect of how we've decided as a firm to approach climate risks and opportunities, because as you may know, we're a fundamental research-focused shop. And as part of that, we thought we'd be doing a disservice to our clients if we were just buying data sets without understanding the science that's underpinning some of the calculations of go-forward projections. So to assist us in that endeavor and recognizing that we are not climate scientists, we've uh, begun a few research partnerships. So five years ago, we started partnering with the Woodwell Climate Research Center, who is one of the foremost physical risk climate science centers in the world. And we've used their research to model things like drought, heat, wildfire, flooding, hurricanes, etc., to really arrive at what the long-term structural changes could be to our investable asset universe for insurers that are going to be affected by the inevitable climate risk that's likely to occur and that we've seen in the news, unfortunately, that is, is starting to really surface in a meaningful way today. That data comes together through uh, application that allows our investors and our analysts to access these projections and links it with specific assets that have uh, geographical locations attached to them. So if you think about things like real estate investment trusts or commercial mortgage-backed securities or municipal bonds, or regional banks that have a very uh, geographically concentrated loan book. These are things that we know there's going to be a climate impact. And now we have the ability to link the science and the projections with the asset itself and arrive at what that impact could be on behalf of our clients. And I think that's been hugely helpful as our clients typically only have a one or two year window in their modeling of some of these risks and want to think about this on a going uh, further looking basis and quite frankly, need to understand from us how that data set works and how it's modeled. That's the physical risk element side of things. The other element is obviously transition risk. And it's very exciting that at the beginning of 2022, we partnered with the joint program of the science and policy of global change at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to work on transition risk specifically. And what that's allowed us to do is explore a whole host of policy projections as it relates to implementing things like a carbon tax or shifting sectoral bases as economies move towards a more green forward looking state and allows us to consider and understand some of those risks, not only through an engagement lens with the portfolio companies we have, but also through some stress testing as well. And so as something like the network for the greening of the financial system, transition risk pathways start to become the standard, we're able to supplement some of that research with the output from MIT. And it's been a hugely powerful uh, research partnership, again, just beginning at the, at the start of this year. And I just tying it to the disclosure request that I mentioned earlier, all of this stuff is important because what you'll see is there's a desire from the regulators to say, you know, don't just consider one data set as you're, as you're monitoring or assessing these risks in your portfolio. Instead, think about the latest science and integrate what other data might be available and really start to take on more of a holistic view of what these exposures could look like. And I think we're able to be a really good ally in that process. So that's more of the macro level at the firm on how we've integrated it. Some client specific examples that touch on this. Uh, at the end of last year, we moved our capital market assumption process 
to be wholly ingrained at, from a climate aware fashion. At a very high level, what that means is that we have transition risk and physical risks embedded in all of our asset class returns for the next 10 years. We had originally debated creating two sets of CMAs to achieve this objective, but we had such high conviction in our process and the rigor that was used to, uh, to generate the research that we actually moved our only CMA over to this climate aware scenario. Uh, as we, we believe that this is what our clients should be considering as you're making strategic asset allocation decisions. And so now when we perform an SAA on behalf of our insurance clients, we're able to have some element of climate considerations as they're thinking about setting their risk and return target. How can insurers evolve their investing approach to tackle these issues? So I think first and foremost, you want to ensure that the investment professionals are in line with what your corporate philosophy is. So all too often, we've seen some insurers who have gotten out in front of this in their portfolio only to have to either change direction once there's a corporate philosophy or to start to unwind some of the changes that they thought they'd be implementing because it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't make sense in the new world. And that could be focused on things like divestment or specific areas of impact. So the, the first step I take is make sure whatever you're considering the portfolio is in line with your corporate objectives. Uh, the second thing that I would say is establish your baseline exposure. So I, I always say you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you are today. And I think to do that, it means you have to have a full assessment of your exposures, both from a transition risk perspective. So whether that's weighted average carbon intensity or carbon impact, uh, carbon exposure over the enterprise value, whatever metric you're using to, to determine your own emissions, uh, get that locked down and understand where your exposures are as it relates to those today. And then do that same thing on the physical risk side. And, and I think it's important to note, in particular for physical risk, climate science is not a one-for-one -one mapping exercise. A lot of these variables don't fit cleanly to a portfolio, which quite frankly is a reason you still don't see a lot of these risks priced appropriately in the capital markets by our estimation. I think what you should do in the physical risk is an 80-20 rule. So spend 80% of your time on those assets that have uh, 20% of the greatest impact. So those assets that are, are long-lived real assets, things like real estate, things like infrastructure, things like sovereigns that have exposures to, um, to perils that are, are concentrated along the equator, things that you can really isolate and dig into, that would be my next step. And then the third thing I'd say is keep your opportunity set for investing as broad as possible. Use what I said earlier in terms of not being exclusionary if you don't have to. Instead, put the burden of proof on the portfolio managers that you work with and say, we're going to permit you to own in those sectors, but we want to ensure that you've considered the transition plans for high emitting companies today and that you believe that there will be a going concern because every sector is going to end up uh, being relevant in some way, even in a, a Paris aligned net zero scenario. In fact, it's estimated eight to 10% of the net zero future energy mix will still come from oil and gas. And that's at a net zero Paris aligned scenario. So you don't want to divest all those sectors. And then the last thing I'd say is lean into thematic opportunities. So don't just use climate to avoid risk. I think that's an important part of the exercise, but I also think there's the potential to capture alpha by recognizing structural changes, in particular like places like emerging markets where this change is already on their doorstep, both from the transition and physical risk pathways and maybe making a dedicated allocation to lean into some of those areas where you know there's going to need to be investment 
so that a country or a business or an industry can be a going concern in the future. So don't just use climate as a risk off exercise, also use it as a way to capture alpha sources as well. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. John, thanks a lot. Great to talk to you. That was Tim Antonelli, who leads Wellington's Global Insurance Portfolio Solutions. And I'm John Weber for Best Review Magazine. Looking to get the full attention of the insurance industry? We have the platforms that will do just that. Whether it be AM Best TV, AM Best Audio, Best Review Magazine, or Best Day. Find out more by calling AM Best Advertising Sales at 908-439-2200, extension 5399, and have a great day.